Father, uh, I just pray that as we come and we study your word again, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would uh, speak by the power of your spirit, Lord. And that prayer that we prayed this morning, just that uh, you would strengthen us, Lord, by transforming our minds and helping us to see the fullness of you, that we might have the fullness of you in us. And Lord, we, uh, we just ask and pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through our study tonight. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, it's very difficult. It, it's great, but it's difficult that we, in our morning and evening services, by no deliberate plan at all, we have pretty much just meshed together. And, and it's, it's a blessing because it just shows the harmony of God. There is, there, if you come in the morning, you hear it one way. If you come in the evening, you hear it from a different perspective. And it just helps solidify these things. Um, and it's good because it means if you're coming in the evenings and not the mornings, or in the mornings and not the evenings, you're still getting the teaching, the same foundational teaching. Um, the, the downside of it is, is trying to be careful not to essentially just constantly be repeating myself. Um, but in our series on the history of the Holy Spirit, we've now come to the point where having looked through the history, we're now at the present. So we've, we've seen the Old Testament, we've seen the prophecies in the Old Testament, we've seen how things developed in the Gospels and how they further developed and transitioned in the book of Acts. And now we're really looking at how the situation is for a believer today. And a lot of it is going to be, if you've been coming in the mornings, astonishingly familiar. Because we have been dealing in the mornings in the book of Ephesians with, with a whole bunch of things. But a lot of it has covered our status as Christians today. And in part, that's dealt with the relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. So having done it and even summarized it this morning, I'm really not going to spend much time on it at all, really. But we will use Ephesians as our guide. Um, so if we look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, go back to a passage that we're fairly familiar with by now, hopefully, and we'll pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 1. Um, so chapter 1 and verse 13, In him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, again, that's Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So let's just go back and unpack that. We've talked again and again about the fact that we have the Holy Spirit when our Ephesians studies. We've talked about the fact that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But let's just look at it again in detail. When we believed in the gospel, then, and we believed in Christ... We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is, we were marked by the Holy Spirit. And it becomes very clear as we go through the rest of the chapter that the marking of the Holy Spirit was not something that was a distinct ministry that he did, but it's the giving of the Holy Spirit that seals us and marks us out. It is a, we are sealed by him, and he is the promised Holy Spirit. Now, we didn't focus much on the word promised when we were going through Ephesians. But for this study, it bears, it bears our, our, uh, it's worth our time to do so. In that, have we not, as we've gone through this series, looked at the Old Testament promises concerning what's going to happen about the Holy Spirit? We've, we've seen that integration between the promises concerning a new covenant, and that new covenant comes with a new heart, and the giving of God's Spirit is that new heart. We saw that in our studies in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So when he talks about the promised Holy Spirit, it's very easy, as we pretty much did when we went through Ephesians, just to skim over that. But the reality is, if somebody's called the promised Holy Spirit, I mean, if, 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 I, um, if I said, you know, to uh, my wife and kids, you know, one day, the promised, you know, so-and-so is coming today, and I, I give some name, and she, my wife says, 
well, who's that? I've never even heard of that name before. It seems ridiculous me saying the promised because the implication of promised is I've talked about this person, they're coming, I've, I've told you they're going to come, I've promised they're going to come, and now they're here. The, the word promised implies a degree of build-up, a, a degree of anticipation. And so it is, is that the sealing of the promised Holy Spirit is the giving of a spirit that was anticipated, as we've seen in our studies, in the Old Testament. And so we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the giving of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, it is a deposit of our inheritance until we acquire possession. There is an inheritance that is ours. We're not talking about the riches of grace that have been spoken about already. They are already ours. There is an inheritance to come. That we have been promised an inheritance as children of God. That as Christ is the Son of God and He is the... He is leading the way for us and we will follow him. We will follow him to death. We will follow him into a new life, resurrected life with a new body. And there is this time that is to come that sin and the battle with sin will be in our history. Now that inheritance is now guaranteed God has put a deposit down and said, I promise you I'm coming back with a full payment. So here is the Spirit now to enable you to live your life and to fight the battle even while you have a sin nature. And this empowerment is the guarantee that there will come a time when that battle is over. Now can you see the logic there? The logic is, if we can be empowered to overcome sin now while we still have a sin nature, then how much better is it going to be? How much easier is it going to be when we don't have a sin nature? And we still have the Holy Spirit. It's a little down payment. It's a little picture. It's a little glimpse into what is to come. You see, now we can say no to our nature and do something that is contrary to our nature, that is, is, that is godly and glorifies God. And as we do that, we're getting a little glimpse of what it's going to be like in the future. When all of our decisions will be godly decisions. All of our actions will be godly actions. All of our desires will be godly desires. That's the inheritance. That's the promise. And the giving of a spirit is the guarantee that that will happen. And so this promised Holy Spirit is now ours. That's the, that's the statement of Ephesians. We'll, come, we'll keep in Ephesians because we'll come back there um, shortly. But in our, let's, let's do it from the perspective of our historical study. What we've seen in our study in the Old Testament... We've seen the ministry of the Holy Spirit in three areas. And I'm going to deal with these three areas and show you how the transformation has happened in these three separate areas. So area number one is the scope of the Holy Spirit's work. The scope of his work. The scope of his work is that he used to be very rarely in people. It was a very rare thing. But it was promised that the time would come with the new covenant that the Spirit would be given. This new heart would be given. The Spirit of God would be the giving of this new heart. And there would be this time when the Jews would have the new covenant, have the Holy Spirit, and they would no longer need to be shown the gospel, no longer be taught how to come to God, no longer be told to repent of their sins because they'll be there. That's what's to come. And so what was true of, let's take David for example, he had God's spirit in him was going to be true of everyone. And that's essentially what Joel says in his prophecy. He says the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Old men, young men. Old women, young women. Slaves, everyone. It doesn't matter if you're old or young, rich or poor, whether you're, whether you're exalted in the society or whether you're a slave. That everyone will have the Spirit of God. 
Now, that promised Holy Spirit has now been given. Now, the, in the Old Testament, as we know, they weren't devoid of the Holy Spirit. He was with them, nearby them, in the vicinity of them by being in the temple of a tabernacle. But what happened, as we saw in our studies in the Gospels, is that Jesus became the temple. He replaced the temple of a tabernacle. The Spirit of God dwelt in him. And as the Father sent him, so he is now going to send the disciples. He's going to send his followers because he is going to go to the Father, which is better for them, because then they will have the Holy Spirit and the ministry that Jesus had as a temple to the world, they will now have. We, the disciples, the followers of Christ, have now become the temples of God. And as we've seen in our Ephesian studies, more so, the church universal has become the big temple full of lots of the little temples. And so they had the Spirit with them. But now, what we see in Ephesians is now under this new covenant, believers in God have the Spirit in them. We now have the Spirit of God. We are temples of God. And we saw the last few weeks in Acts how that transformation happened historically. People who were saved didn't have the Spirit. Gradually they got the Spirit. And now all people who believe have the Spirit of God. That is the promised Spirit has been given. And so with regards to the scope of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he worked with a few individuals. He was in and upon a few individuals. It was rare. That scope has now completely changed to universal. Everyone now has the Spirit of God. You say everyone? Everyone on the planet? No. Everyone who believes. Now, our series doesn't finish with the present. The bulk of it has been the history. We're doing the present. It's going to finish with the future. So I'm just going to throw out a little problem here that we'll deal with before the end of the series in the future. The promises were given to the Jews. And they were told that all of them would have the Spirit poured out on them. They haven't. The Spirit has been poured out on those who believe. Does that mean that those who believe have in some way taken over the promises, inherited the promises of the Jews? No, it doesn't. The explanation of that is something that we're going to see because here's the thing. If God promises something to Israel, he's going to have to stick to his word. Because if he doesn't, then when he guarantees our inheritance in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, his word means nothing. He either is a truthful God and tells no lie or he's not. So we're going to see how it is. And we've had clues in our studies and we've had clues in our Ephesian studies as well. But we're going to see how it is that a promise that was given to the Jewish people has become a promise that in part at least has been received predominantly by Gentiles. And that will all be explained. So if that's a problem in your thinking, we're going to come to that in the future weeks, the last couple of weeks. But for now, I want us to understand that the promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit that was promised to the Jewish people, that we have now become partakers of that promise. And for now, those of us who believe have that Holy Spirit. And for us at least, not for the Jews yet, but for us at least who are the church, the, the scope of the Holy Spirit's work has gone from being very, very isolated to totally universal. If you are saved when you are four or five, or if you're saved when you're 94 or five, you have the same Holy Spirit. If you are, if you are, um, you know, if you're saved from a, a terrible background, or you're saved from a good Christian home, it's the same Holy Spirit. There is a universality about the giving of the Holy Spirit that we'll talk a little bit more about tonight, maybe later, but we will certainly be dealing in a lot of detail with in our Ephesians studies when we hit chapter 4 in two weeks' time. So the scope of the ministry of the Holy Spirit has gone from isolated and rare to universal. Now, the other thing that has changed, the second of the three things, is the extent of his ministry. The extent of his ministry has gone from being temporary, potentially, to permanent. 
And that's what we see here in Ephesians. So in the Old Testament, there was Saul who was given the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon Saul. And Saul led Israel and he did well for a time. And because of his sin, God removed the Holy Spirit. Took the Holy Spirit away from Saul. Which is why when his protege, David, is then given the Holy Spirit, he replaces Saul as king. And when David, now king, is caught in sin himself, then in his prayer of repentance, when he repents to God for the sin that he's being caught out with, the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, when David is caught out, he then prays in that famous psalm of repentance, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why would he pray such a thing? Because it was a real possibility. The exact same thing had just happened to Saul and he witnessed it. He witnessed Saul being someone in whom the Spirit of God dwelt, being empowered by the Spirit of God to do the works of God, to being a sad wreck of a man who was distant from God and an enemy of God. Then there was Samson, who lived his life by his bowels, if we're going to be biblical. We say that we do things when they're on our heart. A heart in English today is a seat of emotion. In biblical terminology, the heart actually had a bit more to do with the mind as well. But it was the feeling that you get, we say a gut feeling, that's, that's the biblical concept from the bowels. Samson was a man of the gut. He was a man who, who just did what he felt like, you know? Sniff that, mm, that tastes, that smells good, I'll go and eat it. Oh, I feel like doing that, I'll just go and do that, I'll do this. Oh, there's Delilah, she looks pretty handy, oh, I'll go and see Delilah. You know, I mean, he just did what he wanted. What he, and he was the sort of guy who was, who was confident enough and strong enough and bold enough to take what he wanted, and so he did. And yet for that man, the Spirit of God would come upon him. Literally in the Hebrew for, for uh, Samson, more often than not, we're told that the Spirit rushed upon him. The implication, I think, is that the Spirit was a long way away from Samson. And then, whoosh, he's suddenly there because God needs Samson for a particular task. So it's not just someone who is godly like Saul who becomes ungodly, but sometimes you have someone who's, you know, a believer in God, but not a very good one. Someone we might call carnal today. Someone who's not walking as they should. And yet God empowered him and came on him and empowered him and used him for these times. And the next time that God needs to use him again, is there any implication in the text that the Spirit's still with him from last time? No, no, no. The Spirit has to rush on him again. It's like Samson just gets a little bit of a spirit here and there when he needs, God needs to use him. Uh, not like David or like Moses where the Spirit seemed to remain a while longer. Or what about Balaam? Balaam wasn't even a believer. Balaam was, was, was a, an enemy of God. He was some sort of, I don't know, I don't want to use the word prophet because uh, he wasn't a prophet of God. He was a false prophet. But then when we say false prophet, we think about things not coming to fruition. But he got it right more often than not. He was a mystic of sorts. He, whoever he cursed was cursed and whoever he blessed was blessed. And so they hired him to curse Israel. And when he got up to curse Israel, the Spirit of God came upon him and he blessed Israel. The Spirit of God came upon him, an unbeliever. It was very different in the Old Testament. Very different. And we have no indication the Spirit of God was on him before that time or after that time. So the, 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 the ministry of the Holy Spirit has shifted from rare to universal. It's shifted in its extent from being temporary to permanent. A guarantee of our future inheritance. Right? No chance of losing the Holy Spirit. And it has come... I don't know whether you put this with scope or extent, but it comes now to those who believe. I guess that goes with, with the scope. It's universal for all who believe, whereas before even Balaam could have the Spirit of God. So we'll come to the third one in a minute, but let's stick with that for, for a while. Let, let's keep your finger in Ephesians because we're coming back there. But let's 
Um, let's turn to the book of Jude. It's very easy to find. You just go to the end of your Bible to Revelation and it's the book before. And if you say no, that's 1 John, you're just simply turning the pages too quickly. Jude is a page long. A single chapter that sits before Revelation. Jude is a book that's pretty harsh on false teachers. If you think I'm mean with false teachers, you should hear Jude. In verse 17, we don't have to say chapter with Jude because there's only one. But in verse 17 he says, But you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 3 if you're interested. It is these people, these scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions, it's these people who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. This is why, guys, it is so important that we understand the need to call out false teachers. The false teachers, not all people who get some bit of doctrine that's your favorite bit of doctrine. I'm not talking about false teachers in the extent of, you know, you believe in one type of eschatology that this will happen in the end times and someone else believes something different. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about false teachers who misrepresent Christ and misrepresent the gospel. Okay? We cannot be soft on them because they are not misguided believers. They're not believers who need correction. They're devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not in them. And the fruit of their life shows that the Holy Spirit is not in them. The fruit of their teaching shows the Holy Spirit is not in them. Now, I don't want to get distracted here on this point, but while we're here in Jude, we might as well just, just mention it in passing. And that is, too many Christians confuse the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life with clothed religiosity. Somebody just clothing themselves with the apparel of religion. Or as elsewhere the Bible says, have a form of righteousness. Was it a form of righteousness? But of godliness, thank you. But, uh, but no power. No true power. That we're going to talk about power in a minute, so it'll be relevant. But they have the form of godliness. They look outwardly godly. You know? And there are teachers today in some of the biggest churches in America who teach false gospels, who teach nonsense. And guys, these aren't people that to be, you know, oh, well, you know, they've done a lot of good for God. No, they haven't done good for God. And if they have, well, Balaam did good for God as well. But he's condemned in the same book that we're reading now. They're devoid of the Spirit. And the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something that is universal to believers. And these people are unsaved because they don't have the Holy Spirit. You see, there's implications of this doctrine that go way beyond just us being encouraged in our own lives. So when you hear famous pastors from Houston, Texas, saying that you can have your best life now, it doesn't matter that there's 10,000 people watching them. I don't care. I do not care. They're unbelievers. Is that judging? No, that's not judging. That's looking at the scripture and seeing that what the scripture says is true. Now, I, I understand that there are some people today who almost make a ministry out of separating the wheat from the tares. You know? Oh, well, you don't live your life quite like I think you should live your life, so you're probably not saved kind of ministry. I hate those ministries. You know, there are some people that do that very, very, very well. I say, well, you know, you know what I mean. Um, you, know, I, you know, some of you may have heard of a guy called Paul Washer. I think everybody who listens to him on a regular basis probably doubts their salvation at least twice a week. Because that's the nature of that kind of ministry. You're constantly, well, a true believer would do this. A true believer would live this way. And Jesus said to his, to his disciples, you know, when you, when you see the wheat and the tares, they look the same. Don't go pulling out the tares, because you might pull out the wheat by mistake. You wait until harvest 
Because the difference between wheat and tares was that when they came to, their, to the time of harvest, to the time of full ripening, then you could see the difference. So you don't wait around until, you know, well, we're not quite sure yet whether they've come to fruition or not, but that could well be a, yeah, could well be a tear and you go plucking out wheat. That's what those kind of ministries do. But I'm not talking about that. That's wheat and tares and they look similar. I'm talking about the difference between, you know, a dog and an apple. Not a dog and a cat, not an apple and an orange. I'm talking about the difference between a, a chair and, and, you know, a banana. We're looking at things that are completely different. And those who, who, uh, who encourage ungodly passions, who just tell people what they want to hear, who, who preach a gospel of health, wealth and prosperity, who deny the work of Jesus Christ, you know? You know, there are popular guys who sell more books than the good guys. You know, guys like, you know, Rob Bell, let's just give a few names out, why not? You know, you know who, who, who write books telling you, well, everyone's probably saved anyway sort of stuff. And, you know, it, it, it's denying the gospel. It's denying the ministry of Jesus Christ. These people are devoid of the Spirit. And so the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is important because the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit distinguishes us as true believers. And therefore, if, people, if, if, if having the Spirit means something, means anything, then it's got to distinguish us from those who don't. That's what we saw right the way through the Old Testament, right, wasn't it? This person rarely had the Holy Spirit. So what difference did that make? It made a huge difference. They were different from everybody else. And so there are unbelievers who fill pulpits, who teach false doctrine, and they do not have the Spirit. I just thought I'd stick a bit of Jude 19 in tonight. But let's, let's do Romans as well. Let's look at Romans. That's another good book for some of this doctrine. We could, we could be all over the Bible really. But I'll, I'll stick to a few passages. Romans chapter 5. Okay, Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, okay? So, because as Christians we have been justified, declared righteous through our faith in Christ, right? We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? That doesn't mean that our life is peaceful. <laughs> you don't have to be safe for very long to work that one out. What it means is, is that God is no longer our enemy. We've got plenty of other ones instead, but God's no longer our enemy. We, we have been reconciled with Him. Through Him, this is through Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we now are in this grace. That's the Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the blessings of grace. Um, in this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see this twofold thing we've been seeing in Ephesians? It's everywhere in the Bible. There is the you have been blessed with these riches of grace. What more could you possibly need? But there's all this to come still, your inheritance. The hope of glory. More than that. So more than the blessings that we have. And more than the blessings that we will have. More than that. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now there's a lot in this passage, particularly the misunderstanding of hope and all sorts of things. But in short, what it's saying is that there is a reason for us to have joy, not necessarily happiness, slightly different, but joy, even in the midst of our sufferings, because we can see how God works in our suffering, producing endurance, endurance producing character, and character produces hope. Okay? Now, let's just follow that sequence for a bit, okay? If we suffer, okay, then suffering will give rise to endurance. Alright? Okay, I'm going to spend some time on this because this is, this is worth it. Okay. The key word here is we. You've got to have your context. Suffering does not always produce endurance. Okay, now, some of you know my chosen sport is ultra running. And the typical distance 
you know, in long distance running is a marathon. You get shorter races than that and what have you, but the typical distance, the key distance for running in the eyes of the, the non-runner perhaps is the marathon. It's the obvious long distance running distance. For ultra running, our key distance is 100 miles. We have people who travel on foot 100 miles. And when people ask me, how do you train for a 100-mile race, the answer I always give, which I heard, it's not original, I just copied it from somebody else, is training for a 100-mile race is like training to get run over by a truck. It's just going to be miserable, unpleasant, painful, and horrific. And you just, at that point, there's no way to prepare for it. But when it happens, you've got to somehow keep moving. So you start by running, and most people end up walking, and some people can't walk anymore, and they have to sit and rest and walk and sit and rest, and some people have been known to crawl. But you get it done. But there are in our sport a large number, unsurprisingly, of what we call DNFs. And DNFs means did not finish. And there are people, and I have you know, friends, I have friends just this weekend who were doing some of these bizarre races. And I have one friend who got 75 miles in of a race going through mountains in this heat in California, did 75 miles and his foot was in so much pain for the previous 25 miles that he couldn't continue and he dropped out. Did he suffer? <laughs> yeah, he suffered. But did he have endurance unto the end? No, he didn't. No fault of his own, just it, it didn't happen. Now what this is saying in this passage is this. And I hope that this picture should really help you. In the Christian life, is not a sprint. And I'm, I always used to say in my younger years, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. People like to use that quote. It's really not. It's like a 100-mile race. It's just sometimes miserable suffering and endurance. Yes? But as we go through that suffering, if we endure, then it shows that we are in Christ. For we, look at the context here, we rejoice in our sufferings. Who's the we? We who have been justified. If you've been justified, your suffering as a Christian could be absolutely intolerable. And yet at the end of it all, you'll still be a Christian. That's endurance. And that endurance will give you character. What do I mean? What do we mean by character? Well, I think it means this. I used to teach at a college full of Christian kids who were typically late teens, sometimes early 20s. I only had some older ones and the odd younger one, but predominantly I'm dealing with people between the age of 17 and 21. And they would be there in emotionally driven worship, raising their hands up, saying, I'm going to follow you, Lord. Wherever you lead me, I'll follow you. And I used to sit and watch them and I used to snigger. And nothing nasty. And I, and I embraced the heart and I encouraged that heart before anyone mishears me. I encouraged that heart. But quite frankly, they haven't got a clue. Because they've sometimes only been Christian for a matter of a few years. Hardly any of them have known any suffering of any degree at all. And they have not got a clue what they're going to do. You think that's mean, Anthony? It's not mean, it's biblical. Peter devoted himself, Lord will go with you, even unto death will go with you. And then when the opportunity came to go to death, he brought a sword. Look, we're going to die with you, Jesus. And then, just afterwards, he betrayed him three times to save his own skin. Was Peter saved? You betcha he was saved. When he professed his faith, Christ said, on that rock, I will build my church. That profession of faith. He had no idea. He's saying, I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And I see young Christians do that. And I'm like, that's a great attitude to have. But you'll look back one day and smile as well. You know? And then there's that worship song that says, Purify my heart. Let me be as gold and precious silver. And I think of the furnace and I laugh. And I thought, gosh, I used to sing that song. If it played now, today, you know what I'd do? I'd listen and nod knowingly. I'm not, I'm not saying, don't do it, God, but I'm not going to say, do it either. You're God, you'll end up doing it anyway. 
You know, it can be rough out there. You see, what happened with those young kids is they didn't yet have character. Character doesn't mean that, you know, I don't think in this context it means you're necessarily more godly, more fruit of the Spirit. I think what it means is this. I think it means that when you've suffered and you have proven endurance, then you have, there comes a, a gnarliness. There comes a sense of, you know, I've been there, I've seen it, I've been through it. I stand on Christ still now. And there comes with that a strength. You know, those students are there saying, Lord, we're there for you, we're there for you, we just love you, Jesus. And I don't think I would ever, in worship, passionately do that ever again. But if that kind of worship came up, I could sit there and nod and go... I'm still here, Lord. I'm still here. It's character. It's molded character where I now know what that means. I know what it means to take up my cross. I know what it means to lose everything for Christ. And so there is this character. There is this, there is this firmness of character that comes with it. So the suffering, if, you endure, if, we're, if we're really Christ, we endure the suffering. And at the end of that suffering, there comes this character where we've been through it all. We've been through it all. And we still are there saying, I'm Christ's. And with that character, there comes hope. And hope is not, I hope this will happen. Gosh, in suffering, sometimes the one thing you don't want is hope. Because if you're suffering and someone says, Oh, well look, it might all be over next week. Because this is going to happen. And then this doesn't happen. And then you're in a worse situation next week. You wish you never had hope in the first place. That's not the kind of hope the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about hope in the exact opposite way. Hope is something that is assured. And then, so what happens then is that the person who suffers, who is Christ, endures that suffering. There is a character that comes from that, that has this hope, that says, you know what, I'm Christ, I am his, he is mine, and I will be with him forever, and nothing is going to separate me from Christ. Nothing at all is going to take me away from him. He is going to give to me what he promised. His work will be complete in me. How do I know that? Because I still stand despite everything. Now, that little passionate appeal aside, let's look at what the conclusion that Paul comes to after that. Hope does not put us to shame. If we have that hope that's come through that process, that assurance that God's going to do his work ultimately, then there's no shame. That hope is never going to bring shame. There's never going to be a time where we're, like, we're, going to, going to, we're going to be our deathbed and we need to fear in any way, shape or form. Have I made mistakes in my life? Oh, plenty. Have I sinned? Gosh, yes. But I've been through the, everything. And I still proclaim Christ. So when I stand before death, I can laugh in death's face. Not because I'm good, but because I still proclaim Christ. No shame, no fear. And why does this all happen? Look at this. Because. Here's the because for everything I've just got. I've had a little detour here. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. You think, well, why, why is it? It's great stuff, Anthony, but why is it here? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right there. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and because the Spirit of God has been given to us, has been poured, the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Our love for Christ and Christ's love for us is now unbreakable because the Spirit of God is in us. I don't need someone to come along and say to me, you know, it's great if you do, but in a sense of I don't need someone to come and preach the gospel for me to be saved all over again. Because everything that I've been through, I still believe in Christ. 
That's the whole process. Why do I still believe in Christ? Because the Spirit of God was in me from the moment I believed. And the Spirit of God was in me when I was that teenage guy raising my hand saying, I'll follow you everywhere, Jesus. And I hadn't got a clue what I was singing. The Spirit of God was the one that wanted me to follow Jesus. The Spirit of God was the one who, who had me singing, purify my heart, not having a clue what I was talking about. And how difficult it would be and how hot the furnace would be that would purify that gold. But the Spirit of God was in me and having gone through the furnace, and by the way, I don't even begin to imply that I've finished. <laughs> Lord alone knows what is ahead for me in the coming decades. But having been through the furnace, the Spirit of God was in me and in my naivety, not fully understanding, I, I was for Christ. And now I'm not naive anymore, but I'm still for Christ. Where does that cry come from? From the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in me. Now, look at the Israelites who didn't have the Holy Spirit. One minute they're for God, one minute they're against God. One minute they're for God, one minute they're against God. God's our friend, we're God's people. Oh, let's go and see Baal, God's useless. You know? You say, well, most of them weren't saved. Well, what about Saul? I had no doubt that Saul was saved. And when the Spirit of God was in him, he was there being a good king. And then he stumbled and he sinned. And at the end of his ministry, he dedicated himself to doing what Paul did in the New Testament. His namesake, Saul, in the New Testament. Have you ever had seen that link, by the way? They're both called Saul. That Saul, in the New Testament, was going around trying to kill God's people. Because he felt guilty because he got it wrong. I'm sure there's an element of that there. And Saul in the Old Testament spent the end of his life going around trying to kill David. God's man. You see, the Spirit of God is the one that doesn't stop us sinning always. We're always going to mess up and fail, though he is purifying us. But he's the one that will keep us for God. Now sometimes there are people who are struggling with sin. And they'll say, you know, I'm really struggling here. Do I have God? How can I have God's spirit? Because I'm, I'm, I'm distraught because I'm just sinning still. And I say to them, I'll say to them this. Why are you distraught about your sin? It's because God's spirit's in you. That's why you're mourning over the sin in your heart. That's why you don't want sin in your heart. That's why you're frustrated about the sin in your heart. It's because God's spirit is in you. And you're bothered about God. And you care about God. That's God's spirit in you. Now Romans 5 then goes on. And, and let's go through to chapter 8 now. I'm tempting myself here. Having this morning said, I won't get into Romans 8. Here we are. Maybe for those who were here this morning, I'll... Give you a little, little, uh, little bit of uh, what I was referring to. Um, see if I start in verse one, I'm going to get distracted, and then we'll, we'll never finish. No, I, I can't. Let me leave that. Um, but let's pick up in verse five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind, note the repetition of mind by the way, it's where the Spirit works. The mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It cannot, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now, I know that we have this Christianese expression. When a Christian doesn't live as they should, and they keep sinning, we say, he's in the flesh. And when, when we're struggling with our desires, we'll often say, oh, I'm really in the flesh today. But according to Romans, those in the flesh are those who are unsaved. We are not in the flesh, we're in the spirit. And it's because we keep referring to ourselves as being in the flesh that we live like one in the flesh. 
If we recognize that we weren't in the flesh and we were in the spirit, we might start living like one in the spirit. But uh, he says, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And the question is worded in the Greek in a way for us to say, yes, the spirit of God is in me. And therefore we are in the spirit and not in the flesh. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is important stuff, guys. This is what we were talking about last time. This Pentecostal doctrine that some people who are Christians have the spirit and some who are Christians don't. It's nonsense. If you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. Having the spirit is what, what marks you as a Christian in the church age. But the point of our study is that that is different from how it was in the Old Testament. Now in this age, in this church age, in this church era, the, the universal giving of the Spirit, of giving Him fully to all, is the mark of the Holy Spirit. He's our permanent dwelling. He is the one that makes us to be Christ. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Though our bodies are still dead, that's a, notice what I talked about this morning. The body is the realm of sin. The mind is the realm of the spirit. And so it is, that we, as we talked about this morning, we pray to be strengthened in our thinking, in our, in our comprehension, so that we can be transformed in our living. Right. I think we've shown you enough other passages to show you this principle. This isn't something that's just in the book of Ephesians. It's in the book of Romans. It's referenced in Jude. We can find it in plenty of other books as well. Every single Christian has the Holy Spirit. They have him. It's what defines them. It's what marks them out as believers in this age. So the scope is different. The extent is different. The third thing here, and this is where we're going to end tonight. The third thing here that we're going to see about this church age and us having the Holy Spirit is the purpose. We've, we've hinted at it strongly already in our text. So we've done part of it. But remember what it was in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God would come upon someone and they would be empowered, not always, but typically they were empowered for prophecy. Prophecy, remember, was speaking God's word. Right? Okay, well we're not all prophets. So that's, that's uh, not going to be the case now. But I would argue this, that the purpose of the giving of the Holy Spirit has not changed. It hasn't changed. Samson, you're very strong, aren't you? Oh yes, I'm very strong. You can rip up a baby goat, can't you? I can rip up a baby goat. I'm that strong. Can you rip up a lion? No, I can't rip up a lion. The Spirit of God rushes upon Samson. He rips up a lion. Yeah? The Spirit of God empowered him to do things he couldn't otherwise do. When Moses said, hey, I can't do this by myself anymore, God, then what God did is very temporarily he called these other elders in and these elders had the Spirit of God upon them and they start prophesying as well. They start speaking the words of God as well. And they are empowered to do something and the rest of the camp of Israel are like, What's going on? This is ridiculous. We have Moses doing it. Now everybody's doing it. You know, all these guys that we can't do it. They're, these people are different from us, just like Moses is different from us. As Christians, the one thing that we've seen in our Ephesian studies, and if you still have your, your finger there in Ephesians, now's the time to go back, is that the giving of that spirit that we talked about in chapter 1, he then prays, as we talked about this morning, that we might have an understanding of what has been accomplished, what God's done, and that we would know, remember the things he prayed for, we would know the riches of our inheritance, when we would, I'm sorry, the hope to which we're called, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. There is power in the giving of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit prompts Paul's prayer that we would understand that there is a hope that we now have. You have the Holy Spirit, it's a done deal. There is assurance for your eternity now because you have the Holy Spirit. 
How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Because when you suffer, you'll endure. When you endure, you'll have character. When you have character, that hope will become very clear to you. That's Romans 5. So, so we have this hope. We have these blessings and these riches. And we have, and Paul says, I really pray that you will understand that you have an immeasurable power. You cannot comprehend. There are no limits to this power that you have. Now, I want us to understand this. When Samson, for example, in the Old Testament, who was a very strong man, when the Spirit of God came upon him, he was empowered to do superhuman stuff. Right? Right now, that power indwells us who believe. The power that was available is the same power available to us because the Spirit is the same Spirit. That's crucial that we understand that. The power that was given is still the same power. Now, you say then, okay, so next Sunday at church we bring a lion in and just test this theory out. Well, the reality is that no one else tore up a lion other than Samson. And Samson didn't seem to do much prophecy, which many of the other guys did when they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And there are elements of empowerment in this church age that are universal. This morning in our sermon we were talking about us, Paul praying for all the saints that we would be strengthened in our understanding by the Holy Spirit that we would understand the fullness of God in us. All that He done, all that He will do. And as we come to understand that, the fullness of God will be seen in us. But as I said to you this morning, and this is really where I'm going to hold back a bit, because partly because we're out of time, but mostly because we're going to do it in Ephesians 4 in the coming weeks. Although I'm tempted to do some of Ephesians 4 next week for those who don't come in the mornings. But there are gifts that are given to us when the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us. But with the Holy Spirit comes gifts. And those gifts are different for different people in the church. And so there is a sense with the giving of the Spirit, and this is really Ephesians 4 all over, where the giving of the Spirit is the same for all, which unifies us in the sense that we are the same, right? And the Spirit of God is different for all of us, which unifies us because we all need each other. Yes? So the giving of the Holy Spirit has elements that are universal to all of us and elements that are, that are distinct for us. That universality means that we all know we're part of the same tribe, like we saw in Acts, the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles. And the distinctions, the distinctives of the giving of the Spirit means that we all rely upon one another. If you could all unpack the Bible like me, you wouldn't need me. And if I could do what you did, then I wouldn't need you. And I desperately do. More than you could possibly know. So, so we have the giving of the Spirit empowering us in the same way for holy living, for us to know the work of God, for us to understand the work of God, for us to be changed by God, for us to the inner man to grow, for us, to, for us in our faith to, to show the ministry of God in us. That's universal for all of us. But the way in which we become mature Christians will be different. Most of you will never get behind a pulpit and preach. But you'll all be used by God in your own different ways. And so the empowerment is different for us, just like it was in the Old Testament. But this is why, guys, this series is so helpful. Because... When we look at the history of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we see these people and God suddenly shows up and these ordinary people do, do extraordinary things. And when we come to the New Testament, we don't... We, it, it's just nonsensical 
for all the things that we've seen to be said to us and for us to come to a Pentecostal doctrine that says you still need to wait for God to come and do something and then you can do something extraordinary. They're basically doing old covenant living. The whole point of the new covenant promises, the whole point of the giving of the Holy Spirit is that under the new covenant, we are those extraordinary people all the time. And you say, but I don't feel extraordinary. I feel very ordinary. Well, you know what? The answer is this. Ephesians 3. I pray that you will be strengthened. I pray that you will, Ephesians 1.15, I will pray that you will have a, wisdom, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and understanding. I pray that you will get to know. You see, I can sit down with you now and I can say to you one on one now, you have the Spirit of God within you. Because you have the Spirit of God, God has saved you from your sins in the past. And God is given, you have an inheritance that is guaranteed for the future. That you are empowered by His Spirit to do whatever it is that He would have you do. And that one day, this struggle that we now have will be over. Because He's given you His Spirit. And as you struggle through life, and as temptations come, and as suffering comes, and as difficulty comes, if you stay with Christ through it all, then you prove that you were his to begin with. And I could say this to you and you could understand it intellectually. If I gave you a test and an exam, you might write it down and get it right. But knowing it in your heart and living it is a lifelong process. I certainly haven't got there. Not even close. We have a hope Folks, we have an assured future that should influence our lives every single day. And when difficulty comes, when trials come, when opportunities come, we need to know, not just in a test on a quiz, but we need to know, no, no. Deep, deep down, that the power that raised Christ from the dead is within us. We need to be available to God to use us as He so chooses. One of the dangers of reading the Bible is that we look at people like Abraham, and every time we see Abraham, God is just he's doing these amazing things. Calling him here, taking him there. And then of course there's the times Abram mess up, messes up big time as well. But God's there in the midst of it, right? Do you know how much of Abraham's life you see? The teeniest, tiniest bit. And if you were to do a chronology to scale of his life, the bulk of his life, you just would have nothing there. You just don't know anything about him. And then God shows up and says, hey, I want you to go to a land that I'll show you. And then a decade passes, and then two decades, and all of this, you know, and, and his, we see so much of his life, but it, it's there. And, and you know what, for us, our entire lives could be building up and building up and building up. And you might have a conversation one day in the street with one person and never be aware of the fruit of it. And everything that you went through in your life was to bring you to the point of that one conversation. Because the person you spoke to could go and change the world. And they couldn't have done it without you. So in one sense, don't ever feel ordinary because you're living an ordinary life. Even the most extraordinary people in scripture, for most of the time, led very ordinary lives. Before the baptism of Jesus, we know, we know nothing of his life. And he was God incarnate. And for all we can tell, he was raised as a Jewish boy, learning the scriptures and, you know, oh, I'm going to get distracted, but I mean, can you imagine learning the scriptures and then realizing that he's talking about you? <laughs> it's just, just bizarre. But growing in knowledge and wisdom, Luke tells us. 
progressing as he goes through his life, working, learning his trade, his father's trade. Joseph is never mentioned in the, in the latter part of Jesus' life. Most people think that, he, that Joseph probably had died, and that's why he wasn't mentioned after the birth narratives. In which case, Jesus may well have been providing for his family as the eldest son. Ordinary life. Extraordinary person. And the time comes for his ministry, and he goes into the wilderness. We're seeing that in Mark's Gospel. He goes into the wilderness, he's tempted. Suffering, temptation, character, hope. Comes back, Spirit of God comes upon him, and he goes into his ministry mode. <coughs> Listen guys, Moses had 40 years. 40 years after he fled before he came back to Egypt. There's nothing ordinary about the ordinary. God is working in us by his spirit constantly. Constantly. And if, this, if, if God incarnate had 30 years before his ministry kicked off, then we can put up with a bit of ordinary, can't we? Because there's nothing ordinary about the ordinary. Every day is decisions. Every day is decisions as to what are we going to do? Are we going to follow Christ or not? Are we going to allow ourselves to be transformed? Are we going to believe what God has said about us or not? Listen, you take the average Christian, you give them a nice life, you give them a comfortable income, you give them a comfortable life, and you give them very little problems, right? And then what happens is, they believe what they believe because they're never really challenged on it, right? And the, the focus, their hope remains minimal. Let's say that. But when you have the rug pulled out from under you, you're forced to say, do I believe this? Is this true? Is God who he says he is? And that's when the promises of God get really dug into your mind. And you're there saying, he says he's blessed me with every spiritual blessing. Is this true? He's given me his spirit and he's empowered me. Is this true? And that's when you find out. We're all empowered by the spirit of God to do extraordinary things by God. And God will determine when they happen. But that extraordinary work is going on ordinarily in the day-to-day -day life to prepare us for the extraordinary that we may never even be aware of. I hope that tonight in this series, and I hope especially in the Ephesian studies we've been doing, I hope that you guys all recognize a couple of things. Firstly, I hope you recognize the privilege of the Holy Spirit. We would have been given something that was sought after for generation after generation after generation. When David, the king, the great King David, who had a covenant given to him, a Davidic covenant, the line of the Messiah would come for him. He, in God's future kingdom, will co-reign and rule. He will be given a position of authority in the Messianic kingdom. That great King David, he begged God not to take his spirit from him. We never have to worry about that. We are so privileged. And I hope you understand that that means that God can do astonishing things through us. So let's take this opportunity to believe what he says is true, to grow in our knowledge of him, to be transformed by his spirit through the teaching of the word, that we might become ever more usable, we might ever more put to death the sin in our lives, that we might become ever more his practically day by day, and we might ever be available for him to use us for whatever way he chooses to, or whatever time he chooses to. But never believe the lies of the enemy that you are not special. God chose you before the foundation of this world. He chose you because there was work for you to do. 
And no, there's nothing special about you per se, but he chose you and gave you his spirit. And that makes you special. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your, the gift of your spirit for us today. That, that gift that was so longed for that we now have that empowerment within us. Whatever sin entangles us, whatever struggles we have, that you, are, you have given us the empowerment to be transformed, to overcome our sin, to overcome the things that entangle us, Lord, from following you. God, I pray you would change us. I pray you change us by the power of your spirit. May we come to know you better. May we fall in love with you more. And may we become more like you. Amen.